Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. You finally made it to episode three out of three in our three-part series on anemia. I know the first two episodes in this series were very long, but if you listen to them, hopefully you have a better handle on microcytic and normocytic anemia. In this episode, we are going to complete the final arm of our mental diagram or schema, the last room of our mind palace, and we are going to address macrocytic anemia. I'm going to try to keep this episode as short as possible because I know those first two were very long. So let's get right into things. What is the MCV in macrocytic anemia? The cells are going to be large, so MCV is greater than 100. Now, it's really important for us to understand how macrocytic anemia is subclassified. So within the category of macrocytic anemia, once that patient has an MCV of greater than 100, the anemia is going to be subclassified into megaloblastic versus non-megaloblastic. And anyone have an idea what that means? Megaloblastic anemias are anemias that result from some kind of impairment in DNA synthesis. Essentially, they have impaired DNA synthesis, and so precursor products are synthesized, but they can't be put together to form DNA. And the way I think of it is the cells have all these products that are created, but they can't form that final product of DNA. And so all those precursors just kind of accumulate and the cells get bigger. And so that's why we see this MCV of greater than 100 in the megaloblastic anemias. But there's another important detail. What types of cells do we see in megaloblastic anemia specifically that are not in the non-megaloblastic? So the, you know, the red blood cells are going to be enlarged, but there's another type of cell that's abnormal, and those are the neutrophils. The neutrophils are going to be called hypersegmented neutrophils. And basically, the nuclei of those neutrophils end up being segmented. And it's the same mechanism. The DNA is not properly synthesized. So kind of just to give a quick recap, in macrocytic anemia, we have megaloblastic and non-megaloblastic. The megaloblastic anemias result from some kind of impairment in DNA synthesis, which causes the red blood cells to enlarge, explaining why it's a macrocytic anemia. And it also causes uh, this finding of hypersegmented neutrophils. Again, all of this is because DNA is not properly synthesized. And then the only thing you need to know about non-megaloblastic anemia is that the MCV is large, but you do not see the hypersegmented neutrophils. Most macrocytic anemias are megaloblastic, and so we'll go ahead and talk through that first. I'm going to present two cases here, and they're going to be two different diagnoses, and then we'll kind of address both those diagnoses together because they're similar and they can be very easily confused to each other. And you'll see what I mean as I go through the cases. So my first case for you, let's say an alcoholic patient comes in and has a macrocytic anemia. What's the most likely diagnosis here? The answer is folate deficiency, folate or B9 deficiency. And then the second case, um, you'll kind of, I'm sure you can already guess the answer, but let's say that um, 
a patient who is a vegan for six years develops a macrocytic anemia, now also has neurological symptoms like paresthesias down her legs, unable to walk. What's the diagnosis here? So this is B12 deficiency. And so you can understand why I want to talk about folate and B12 deficiency together because they are kind of easily confused. So how do we distinguish between folate and B12 deficiency? How do we differentiate the two? So one way to distinguish between them is definitely symptoms. So the neurological symptoms are only going to be seen in B12 deficiency. Do you guys know why that is? So B12 or cobalamin is necessary for the synthesis of myelin. And so whenever a patient has B12 deficiency, they're not able to make the myelin and that results in the, this condition called subacute combined degeneration. And that's kind of the name for those neurological symptoms that we see in B12. And what causes subacute combined degeneration? It's demyelination of the dorsal columns and the corticospinal tract. So it affects both sensory as well as motor function. And then other than symptoms, is there any other way that we can differentiate between folate and B12 deficiency? Absolutely. The other way we can differentiate between them is labs. Can anyone think of what lab you would check if you want to distinguish in a patient with macrocytic anemia if this is B12 versus folate deficiency? If you're thinking of methylmalonic acid, that's absolutely correct. What do we expect methylmalonic acid to be in B12 deficiency? Methylmalonic acid is increased, and that's because B12 acts as a cofactor for an enzyme that breaks down methylmalonic acid. So without B12, we end up getting an accumulation of methylmalonic acid. What do we expect methylmalonic acid level to be in folate deficiency, however? It's going to be normal, again, because B12 is what acts as a cofactor for the breakdown of methylmalonic acid. So if we don't have B12, we're going to see an increase in methylmalonic acid. But folate is really unrelated to that pathway. And so in folate deficiency, methylmalonic acid is normal. If you need a quick mnemonic to remember this, I just think that B12 is the higher number. And so MMA is going to be higher in B12 deficiency. Now, which deficiency takes longer to develop, folate deficiency or B12 deficiency? So B12 deficiency takes longer to develop. Both folate and vitamin B12 are stored in the liver, but folate is stored for about three to four months, whereas B12 is stored for three to four years. And so we run out of folate stores a lot faster then we run out of our B12. And that's why if a patient is vegan, uh, we expect them to develop B12 deficiency of eventually because B12 is really found in animal products. However, they need to be vegan for several years. It's not going to cut it if they're vegan for just a few months. And the reason is that B12 stores last in the liver for three to four years. Another really important point with these deficiencies, if you suspect that a patient has B12 or folate deficiency, you really have to make sure which one they have because folate repletion can mask the symptoms of B12 deficiency. So you might fix their macrocytic anemia, 
But again, in B12 deficiency, we see these neurological symptoms, which we do not with folate deficiency. And so it's possible that if you treat macrocytic anemia just with folate, when a patient does have underlying B12 deficiency, you'll mask the symptoms of the anemia because you'll fix that, but you won't get to the underlying neurological problems. So it's really important to be sure which deficiency you're treating. Now, we do need to know a little bit more about B12 deficiency, so I'm going to quiz you on some things. Which parasite can cause B12 deficiency? Anybody remember? So remember Diphilobothrium latum? That's the fish tapeworm that can lead to B12 deficiency. And then there's an autoimmune condition that can also lead to B12 deficiency. Anybody know what that is? Pernicious anemia. Absolutely. What's the cause of pernicious anemia? So generally, uh, pernicious anemia is caused by antibodies against intrinsic factor. An intrinsic factor is something that's needed to absorb B12. Remember, in, intrinsic factor is produced by parietal cells in the stomach, and then once B12 binds intrinsic factor, it moves further down the GI tract, and it actually ends up getting absorbed in the ileum. So you can have antibodies against intrinsic factor, or you can have antibodies against the parietal cells in the stomach, which are responsible for producing intrinsic factor. And how do we historically diagnose pernicious anemia? So historically, pernicious anemia was diagnosed using something called the Schilling test. And you actually don't need to know the details of it, but it involved ingesting radiolabeled B12 in various stages to see if there was a problem with absorbing um, or not. Now, how do we diagnose pernicious anemia, however? We don't make patients ingest radiolabeled B12 as a hint. We can actually just test for antibody against intrinsic factor. Very good. Let's move on to our third case, which falls under the category of megaloblastic anemia. So let's say an infant comes in with failure to thrive, also has cloudy urine, and if you look at their urinalysis, you see crystals, and they have megaloblastic anemia. What's the diagnosis I'm going for here? So this is orotic aciduria. What's the problem with patients who have orotic aciduria? So basically, this is a rare autosomal recessive disease caused by a defect in UMP synthase, or uridine monophosphate synthase. Because they have a deficiency of this enzyme, UMP synthase, they're unable to carry out de novo pyrimidine synthesis pathways. And that ends up leading to the accumulation of orotic acid. Why is this patient's urine cloudy with crystals in the urine? So orotic acid ends up accumulating because it's not broken down by that enzyme, UMP synthase, and the orotic acid ends up going into their urine, causing crystal urea. What's the treatment for orotic aciduria? So you can just treat these patients with uridine monophosphate, which bypasses the broken enzyme. So it's essentially the product of that reaction synthesized by UMP synthase, um, and that allows them to synthesize pyrimidine. And then there's another condition that actually has a buildup of orotic acid, 
But in addition to the buildup of orotic acid, you also see hyperammonemia. In patients with ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, which is an enzyme involved in the urea cycle, you can also get an accumulation of orotic aciduria. However, unlike patients with orotic aciduria, um, you also see hyperammonemia in these patients. Um, so just remember that there's two, two cases where you can see a buildup of orotic acid. Erotic aciduria, which we just talked about, the defect in UMP synthase, or ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. In the latter, in ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, it's involved in the urea cycle, so you're also going to get a buildup of um, ammonia. I'm sorry if that was very confusing. I know these are big words involved in biochemistry, but these are very rare uh, and unlikely to show up on the exam. I just wanted to go over them for you guys. Next, we're going to talk about non-megaloblastic anemia. And do you guys remember how we distinguish non-megaloblastic from megaloblastic anemia? We talked about it at the beginning of the episode. So these patients are going to have a large MCV, but they're not going to have hypersegmented neutrophils. Very good. I only have one case for you here. This is a case that tends to present in infancy, and patients have macrocytic anemia. They also have a short stature. They tend to have craniofacial abnormalities, as well as triphalangeal thumbs. What's the diagnosis here? So this is called diamond black fan anemia. And do you guys know what causes diamond black fan anemia? It's basically caused by a defect in erythroid progenitor cells. And this is, again, one of those very rare conditions that's not commonly tested. I just wanted to mention it to kind of complete our picture of macrocytic anemia. With that, congratulations, guys. You have made it to the end. Um, That kind of completes that very last branch of anemia, which is macrocytic anemia. So congratulations if you've stuck through this three-episode series. Um, What I really want to do really quickly at the end of this episode is just go through a rapid review of the diagnostic schema for anemia and how to tackle questions when all the labs are kind of presented in a question vignette. So first of all, kind of to jump back to our first episode, how do we tell that a patient even has anemia? What lab value are we going to look at? Hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is going to be low in patients with anemia. What's the next step to diagnosing anemia? So you know they have anemia, but you want to know what kind they have. So you look at the MCV to see if it's microcytic, macrocytic, or normocytic. If the MCV is less than 80, what is that? Microcytic anemia. And if you'll recall, our little mnemonic that we created for the different types of microcytic anemia was T-SAIL. T-S-A-I-L. So we have the thalassemia, sideroblastic anemia, anemia of chronic disease, iron deficiency anemia, and lead poisoning. Now, what about an MCV of 80 to 100? What kind of anemia is that? Normocytic anemia. And do you guys remember how we classify normocytic anemia? So non-hemolytic versus hemolytic. The non-hemolytic is easy. There's really just two things, anemia of chronic disease and aplastic anemia. The hemolytic is further classified into intrinsic versus extrinsic. What were the extrinsic types of hemolytic normocytic anemia? 
Remember that mnemonic, A-V-V-I. So antibodies, vessels, valves, infections, these are all things that can lead to an extrinsic hemolytic anemia. And then how did we kind of organize the six different intrinsic hemolytic anemias? Remember, there's six of them, so we said two, two, and two. Two affecting the cell membrane, two affecting globin, and two affecting enzyme. So hereditary spherocytosis and G6PD deficiency, sickle cell anemia and hemoglobin C disease, and then paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria and pyruvate kinase deficiency. It's hard to remember, but remember, two affect the cell membrane, two affect the globin protein, and two affect enzymes. And then finally, in this last episode, MCV greater than 100 is what type of anemia? Macrocytic anemia. And how do we classify that? So megaloblastic versus non-megaloblastic. And what's the difference between those two? Megaloblastic means the patients have impaired DNA synthesis. And so we also see hypersegmented neutrophils in addition to large MCV. What diseases are megaloblastic anemia? B12 and folate deficiency, as well as orotic aciduria. And then non-megaloblastic, what type of anemia is non-megaloblastic? Diamond blackfin anemia. And remember, these patients have that genetic syndrome and they have triphalangeal thumbs. Thank you so, so much if you hung in there through that last bit excellent job for making it this far in this series. There are a lot of different diseases that fall under the category of anemia, but what I really want to emphasize is how important it is to have a diagnostic schema or an approach to getting at the underlying cause of anemia. This is useful not just when you're answering test questions, but also when you're working up patients for anemia in the future. I also want you to remember that common things are common. And so if a patient has elevated MCV, I would not jump to a diagnosis of diamond blackfin anemia. You want to look for the common things first, like B12 and folate deficiency. So in closing, I just want to thank you guys again for your support and for taking the time to listen to this three-part series on anemia. I really hope that now you feel more confident discussing and tackling questions on anemia. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please log on to spoonfulofsugar.org and you can actually post them under the link for this episode. And if you found this episode helpful, then please subscribe, give us a rating or review, follow us on social media, anything would be appreciated. And finally, if there are any other topics that cause SOS levels of panic, then get in touch with us because we would love to help you out with a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down.